You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Roger. I'm the associate pastor here. If we haven't met before, we should do it. Come say hi after the service. Now you know what I look like. Come shake my hand. I'd love to meet you. If I've never met you with your mask off, <laughs> yeah, come do that. We, we moved here in the middle of the pandemic, so a bunch of you, I, just, I only know you like from here up, you know, so I'm, I'm re-meeting people right now. It's super duper fun. Um, I'm excited this morning on Baptism Sunday to continue the series that we kicked off last Sunday called Fun and Following Jesus. Um, so back in the summer, fallish or something like that, I don't remember the time period. No, this must have been around March. And you'll understand why in a moment here. Um, in the springtime of 2009, Angela and I and a couple friends of ours took a trip up to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Any Tar Heel fans in the house? Zero. Got like one. All right, good. That's my wife. Um, now, in this time period, we were, we were looking to church plant. At the time, we had been going to Vineyard Community Church here in Augusta. Uh, we'd been going through VLI, which was hosted here at Vineyard Augusta. And so uh, we were heading out to church plant, but we didn't know where. We had already been kind of released. The vineyard gave us a, a gold stars and said, go for it. Um, but we were discerning where to go. And so we were checking out different cities all kind of around the southeast and um, kind of had a vision for a church and had a vision for a type of place, but we weren't sure where. So we took this like kind of weekend trip or something um, just for a couple of days up to Chapel Hill. We rented this small, quaint little house in this kind of quiet little neighborhood. And this is back before like Airbnb, but it's that kind of situation, right? Where you just kind of rent this whole small little house. And um, our friends were with us and their young daughter, I think at the time was with them. And um, we get there this first night. And, and I'm, if I'm honest with you, in hindsight, I think I was in this mode where I was just, I was like being hyper-spiritual. I was, I was being, I was like over-spiritualizing all this. I was hoping we would go to this town and like there would be like signs in the sky, you know, or I would have like dreams in the middle of the night or random strangers on the street would walk up and just say like, can you tell me how to meet Jesus, you know, or something. Um, and so we get there on this first evening and we're kind of tired from the drive and, and it's getting dark outside and we're, we're starting to wind down and I am intentionally trying to like hype myself up into this hyper-spiritual place where I'll receive some divine download from God. And, and it's getting late into the evening and everything's real quiet and dark and our friend's child is asleep. And suddenly, like, the entire neighborhood erupts. Like, all around us, we just hear, like, hoots and hollers and whoa, whoa. And, like, we hear, like, car horns honking. And we run outside and we see people, like, streaking up and down the street. Like, people are, like, banging trash cans. It's the loudest thing. And we're kind of we're freaking out a little bit, like, what's going on? And I'm sure our friends are a little annoyed, like, all these crazy neighbors are going to wake up our daughter, and I'm trying to, like, get into, like, spiritual mode, and they're just totally harshing my vibe. And, and we were just kind of, like, taken aback and a little bit annoyed by this. Now, come to find out, the next day, the UNC men's basketball team, the Tar Heels, won the national championship, right? So this is where you pretend like you're all Tar Heel fans. And I say, tar, and you say, yeah. oh, okay, at least you know the drill. Okay, you know the drill. Um, and, but we didn't know this. And so for us, this whole celebration at first was kind of off-putting. We're like, what kind of crazy town have we like, potentially thought about moving to? Isn't, that's, that's exactly the kind of crazy town that we thought about moving to. The only thing we didn't see that night was couches on fire. We saw those like, later on after another subsequent win by the Tar Heels. Um, but my point is this, is that one person's celebration 
can actually just be really annoying for someone else, especially if they don't understand the reason for the party, right? We saw photos of this later on and down in like the main cross section, the main uh, intersection of downtown Chapel Hill, there would be like 30 or 40,000 people like crowding the streets, just all in celebration. But for us, we were just kind of annoyed by it. Now, we're gonna read some parables this morning in Luke chapter 15, and Jesus tells these parables because Jesus was making a habit of, of having these celebrative parties with all the, quote, wrong people, and he was, quite frankly, getting on some people's nerves, right? A lot of the religious folks, this was more annoying to them than anything. But Jesus, as, as he kind of tries to explain, Jesus was doing what God was doing. And through this, he was inviting all the earth to do what all of heaven is doing, um, so we're going to read the entirety of Luke 15. The text isn't going to be up here because it's just, frankly, too many verses, and I wanted to be nice to Nathan today, right? So you didn't have to flip through, like, 20 slides. Um, you're welcome to read along with me. You can just listen, right? You can pretend like maybe you're one of the crowd around Jesus as this, at this time and just listen to these stories wash over you this morning. Uh, but let's pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to give his ears to hear. So God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that you have written them down through human hands and through human minds so that we can understand you more, that we can understand ourselves more, that we can understand how it is that you are at work in this world and how it is that you invite us into that. And so God, whether we're hearing some of these stories for the first time today and they seem kind of strange, whether, whether we're hearing them for like the hundredth time and they seem just overly familiar, God, would you give us ears to hear? Just by your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear just something from you that, that challenges us, that inspires us, that excites us, that encourages us. We wanna hear you. God, I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own this morning. Amen. So here we go, Luke 15, the whole thing. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued. You catch this? He said, let me tell you a parable, and then he keeps going. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son who was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the sermon today, I've simply just called party parables because that's what all three of these are, right? And if we're gonna talk about having fun following Jesus, I think this is a great place to look. Jesus telling these parables about parties. And, and the big idea, what I wanted to gra- want us to grasp this morning is just simply this, is that Jesus invites us to party with all the wrong people as he recovers them because this is what he was doing. Now, Jesus gives this long-winded response to the Pharisees, right? These three parables, um, because they were giving this, so they have this like incredulous questioning of his welcoming and feasting with all the wrong people, the tax collectors, right? The, The fellow Jews who were sort of colluding with the Roman government, not just to get taxes out of them, but they were known to sort of overtax them and skim off the top and fill their own pockets, right? 
Um, They also use the word sinners, which is a sort of a broad, broad distinction for anyone that the good, holy, um, overly righteous Jews would consider to be unclean or unholy. Those other people, right? The them that we want to separate ourselves from. But it was these people, right? As, As Luke describes it, it was all these, quote, wrong people who were the ones who were irresistibly drawn to Jesus, he was, he was the kind of preacher that these far-from-God people like to listen to. I hope to be this. I hope to be the kind of preacher that like far-from-God people like to listen to like Jesus. And there was something in the way that he spoke. There was something in the way that Jesus acted and treated them that was attractive to them. They just kept coming. He was different than these other dominant religious leaders that they were used to hearing and that they were used to avoiding and so the Pharisees, they'd been witnessing this, this magnetism of Jesus for some time, and, and it was just quite frankly annoying. He was having parties with them that just rubbed them the wrong way and got under their skin. And so these three parables that he tells all are to make the same point, a very sharp point. It's like Jesus is responding to them saying, so why do I welcome and eat with all the wrong people? Rather than me telling you, why don't I show you? And he paints these three scenes for them. Now, each of these parables has five things in common that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Five things that I think are all of which is Jesus trying to make this point, and that hopefully we can hear from him this morning as well. The first thing is that every single one of these parables has a God figure in it. Now, this is quite common in most of Jesus' parables, right? If you read a bunch of Jesus' parables, it's pretty common that they have a God figure. Maybe some famous ones, sort of like the Good Samaritan doesn't quite have one, but other ones do. Um, and, and all these God figures in Jesus' parables are pretty darn fascinating. They can be found in almost all of them. And quite often, the point of them is to unsettle his hearers' assumptions about who God is and what God is like and who, who it is that God likes, and what his business is in the world, and how he goes about doing what he's doing, right? Even today, we have these assumptions of who God is, and what God is like, and who God likes, and what his work is, and how he goes about it. Well, Jesus wants to, like, upend that for us. And so these three God figures are surprising and subversive in their own unique ways. And the first one we see is that God as a shepherd, God as a shepherd, Now, this figure is at worst just kind of like unflattering to God in some ways, right? While there are repeated references in the Hebrew scriptures to God as shepherd of Israel, right? The the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is common, but really shepherds are not like all that fancy. You don't really necessarily want to be compared to a shepherd. It's, it's not an image of power. It's not an image of prestige. It's not an image of like, like cleanliness or smelling good or having lots of friends and getting invited to fancy parties. You hang out with stinky sheep all the time. In the ancient Near East, the, the, the shepherds were sort of on the lowest end of all the blue-collar workers. They, they were rough-necked. They, they were the, the ones of their days. They would, much, they would much prefer a PBR to like a fine wine at your fancy party, Right? <laughs> This is who Jesus is comparing him to. The person who is most at home among smelly sheep It's not the person that you want hanging around your important guests, but Jesus is already making the point that these unsavory types are exactly his kind of crowd. And even shepherds are exactly his kind 
of people. So the first person he shows as a God figure is a shepherd. Now, the second one, Jesus ups the ante a little bit, God as a woman. Did you guys catch this? This is one of my favorite things. So people that love to, and there is, there's a, the Bible as a whole was written, written in, in very patriarchal society. So oftentimes, a lot of the, the, the people who are elevated are men, right? A lot of the examples that we are given of like the people to aspire to happen to be men. And so there's lots of finger pointing that can be made at the scriptures. But I love it at this point of how subversive Jesus is already being. He is comparing God to a woman. This is the scandalous God figure. And even today, we're, we're so accustomed to referencing God as he, we, we might kind of find this a little bit shocking, and maybe that's a good thing. It, it definitely would have been shocking in the ancient Near East, where women held a definitely much lower status in society than we do today, certainly. Now, at the risk of opening up a can of worms... <laughs> Uh, I think it's worth saying three things. First, any language dealing with God is inadequate because of the, lang- the limitations of human speech, right? Any, any language that we use about God is always going to be metaphorical. It's never going to quite get to be um, who God is. As Flannery O'Connor says, a God who you understand that would be less than yourself, and so he can't really be God, Right? So all of our language is grasping for something that's difficult to express. Second, um, God is, of course, neither male nor female. And so the use of any gender pronouns ought to at least be used with caution. This, I think, is also the power of Genesis, right? When he created man and woman, and he said, let us make man and woman in our image, right? That somehow together, the fullness of human gender expresses God way more than any one expression does. And third, as I mentioned a minute ago, both the Old and New Testaments were written in cultures and languages that were heavy, heavily patriarchal. So, so we shouldn't just be surprised even at the writers that oftentimes just refer to God um, using male pronouns. And Jesus knew this. This was Jesus' people. It was his culture. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. He knew all of that, just as we do. And yet here he presents the God figure in this parable as a woman. And then maybe to make it a little more palatable again, he swings back to describing God as a father. This is probably the easiest of them to swallow, right? So the ones who immediately are like, wait, wait, God is a woman, what, what? And suddenly he's back to a man and maybe they forgot for a second. Back to the he language at least, right? But I think that this only serves to lower their defenses so that Jesus can throw some more dangerous theological punches, You know, because this father is still not the God that the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that he was. Nor is he the God that we often assume that he is today. So we have these three God figures that Jesus presents. And each of these God figures, getting onto the second one, they, they each have other things in common. They each lose something, Right? And so this is the second aspect, is we, in each of these perils, we have a lost thing. We have a lost thing. Now, I think what's important here, right, the, the shepherd loses a sheep. The, the woman loses a coin. And the man loses one of his sons. But what's interesting here is I think the particular sheep and the particular coin weren't, weren't really special in and of themselves. This wasn't why the shepherd went after them. The point of the parables is that the only thing different about this one sheep is that it was lost. The only thing unique and different about this coin is that it was lost. 
The only thing different from one son to the other is that one of them was lost. Listen to what N.T. Wright says in his commentary on Luke. He says, what was it after all about that one lost sheep that made the shepherd go after it? It wasn't the one with the wooliest coat. It wasn't the one with the sweet, almost human bleat. It wasn't the one that regularly nuzzled up close to his knees. It was simply the one that was lost. No qualification except a disqualification. I love that. Do we have that quote up there? No qualification but a disqualification. And into the other parables, this is true as well. The coin also was no more special than any of the other coins. It wasn't shinier than the other coins. It wasn't more valuable than the other coins. It was worth the same amount. It would spend just the same. And again, this holds true for the third parable. The the father in the third parable was not playing favorites with his kids. He's the kind of dad that you ask him, well, which son is really your favorite? And he would say, yes. He didn't love the younger son more than the older son. The point of the parables, again, is that the only thing different about the younger son is that he had been lost. And he even uses more extreme language that it was like he was as good as dead. And for all the father knew, he was dead. And as the father says, though, in the final line, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And I think this is just, this is maybe just me. It seems a little bit surprising that Jesus portrays these three three as all losing something. It's a surprising suggestion to me that God loses anything. That feels a little unsettling to me. I don't normally think of God as one who loses something, but this is the picture that Jesus is painting. Like lostness, it seems, isn't particularly disconcerting to God. Those things that are most precious to God are not precious because they are unlosable, but they're precious to him precisely because they are prone to getting lost, right? Sheep, quite famously, are not very smart, right? Sheep are prone to wandering off. Coins, as we all know, are prone to rolling off the table or falling between the couch cushions. Children are prone to running off and making poor life decisions. All the parents are chuckling right now. You're probably chuckling at me because my kids are still so young. You're like, just wait, Roger. Just wait. That's why we're building into our kids now. We just, we, instead of telling them everything to do, we just say, make a good decision. You know, like make a good decision. But it doesn't matter. This God, it seems, does his best work in lostness. And so these are the party parables. But before we get to the, before there are parables of joy, there are parables about lostness. Before you can get to the party, before you can get into that joy, you gotta realize that that lostness means me and that lostness means you. That lostness means everybody, but lostness is the business of the father. The business is the, the lostness is the business of that woman and lostness is the business of the shepherd. Party parables and their lostness parables. So this is the fourth thing these parables share in common is after you've got a God figure and a lost thing is then you get to this third thing, a lengthy search. A lengthy search. It says the, she- the shepherd wanders all around the countryside till he finds it, 
right? The woman flips on the lights at night and sweeps the whole house until she finds it. This father, we don't know how long he waited, years and years perhaps, hoping that his son would return. Now, before we go too much further here, a couple quick words about repentance, right? Because this is mentioned in every single one of them, right? That there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't, etc. this kind of thing. Now, first of all, in, in the Greek, the word sin, and this is in the Hebrew idea as well, simply means missing the mark. So if you imagine that you're like an archer or you're at like a firing range or something and you're shooting at a target, sinning simply means like you didn't hit the bullseye. You're a lousy shot, all right? So everybody turn to somebody next to you and just say, you're a lousy shot. You're a lousy shot. Now, of course, what do you do if you're a lousy shot, Right? Well, you can either just give up altogether. That's what I would do. Or, <laughs> or you recalibrate, right? You adjust your aim. You figure, oh, man, I was, I was way off to the right. I need to come back left. Oh, I, I overcorrected back towards the middle. So a good synonym, I think, for repentance, right? Repentance, we, it's a very religious-y sounding word, and I kind of don't like it. We hear just like stop doing bad things, right? Is that, I mean, is that fair enough that that's kind of what it means most of the time? Stop doing bad things and do good things, right? Read your Bible more. But, but, but a better idea, if sin is missing the mark, repentance simply means recalibrate, readjust your aim at what you're shooting for. Because some kind of change must take place here, right? Jesus is not saying that, that all these sinners just are accepted as they are. Some kind of change has to happen. But Jesus has a different idea than his critics do about what repentance means. For, for their, his critics, and much like many religious people today, repentance means adopting their standards of purity and law observance, right? Stop doing all these things, do all these things, check the repentance box. But for Jesus, this picture looks rather different. For Jesus, when people follow him in his way of living in the world, when they sit in their lostness, first of all, in such a way that they allow themselves to be found, when they allow themselves to be brought back into the way of Jesus, that is true repentance. You know, we tend to, we tend to think of repentance as something that we do. Am I right? Right? Like this is an action. It's something that I have to do, and it's on me to do it. And it, quite frankly, gets really frustrating when I sin more and more, and then I have to repent more and more, and, and it just feels like some more kind of like hoops that I have to jump through for God to accept me and love me. We think of repentance as primarily something that we do in order to enter God's favor. And we do have some responsibility in it, but these parables seem to strongly indicate that what we do is secondary to what God does. Catch this. It's secondary to what God does. He acts, we respond. Listen to what, this is one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. Um, it's called Kingdom Grace Judgment um, by an Episcopal guy named Robert Capon. He says, these parables of lostness, therefore, are far from being exhortations to repentance. Rather, they are parables about God's determination to move before we do. Oh, I love that. God's determination to move before we do. These stories, therefore, are parables of grace and grace only. There is in them not one single note of earning or merit, not one breath about rewarding the rewardable, correcting the correctable, or improving the improvable. There is only the gracious, saving determination of the shepherd, the woman, and the father, all surrogates for God to raise the dead. 
In each of these parables, all the sheep does is it's sitting around in its lostness out in the country. The coin is just sitting in its lostness up under in the darkness of the couch. And in the third one, right, the, the third one, the, the search seems to be a little bit more passive, right? The father seems to be kind of waiting there, but the father doesn't go wandering through the world searching for his son, right? Really, there's kind of no telling where his son is run off to. It says that he set off for a distant country, but there's no indication that the father even knew what country that was, or even if he made it to that country, or if he decided to go to a different country. All we do know is that the father remained at home, but he was diligently watching the road. He was diligently, day in, day out, watching the road just in case his son came back. God is a searching God. This is why lostness is his business. He likes looking for lost things. His grace is expressed in his unending search for anything and anyone that is lost that he might restore them to relationship. The the decisive action in both of these first two parables, and I would say more subtly in the third, the decisive action is taken by the God figure, right? The shepherd and the woman are determined to find the lost, and the father is constantly watching for his son's return. Neither the sheep nor the coin does a blessed thing except sit around in its lostness. And so then we get to like the climax of this parable, which is the party, right? This is kind of the apex. This is why these are party parables. And, and this is why I love that this happened when I'm preaching this on Baptism Sunday. Baptism is one of the big parties that we had, right? It's one of the big parties that we have that Jesus handed down to us where we celebrate that Ben was lost, but now he's found. Ben was dead, and now he is alive. Can we all just cheer again? Man, it's just, yeah. Baptism is a picture of what God does for us. This is why even in baptism, it's why Ben doesn't get in and and put himself under the water and stand back up, but someone else lays him down and raises him up. Ben is just the passive recipient of that today, right? Right? This is the story of the good news of Jesus. Now, there's actually four parties in Luke 15. The first three are the fictional ones, right? That you've got the parties that are thrown by the shepherd, the woman, and the father. And these are all block parties. This is not like, hey, you know, I mean, maybe we'll like throw a few burgers on the grill and I'll just have a few friends over, right? Every single one of them, they're inviting all their friends, all their neighbors. It's outside. It's got to be loud. It's raucous. Everybody's invited right? The father one doesn't say that he invited all of his friends and all of his neighbors, but he did kill a fatted calf, which I'm thinking if you're going to kill a fat calf and you don't have like refrigeration and freezers in that time period, you got to eat it all quick. So what do you do? You invite all your friends and neighbors, right? So everybody is here at these parties. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to correct our vision so that we can see that God is a searching God. And then once God is kind of done being a searching God, he's a partying God. He is a God who's filled with joy and wants to share that joy with other people. There's a, he's a joyful God who at the moment that he has a good reason to rejoice, he can think of nothing better to do than to invite others into sharing in his happiness. He, God is not a God who's, who's pleased to kind of sit off quietly by himself in a corner, right, with his great searching skills, thinking, man, I'm so good at finding things. Look at all these things I found. All these silly sheep. 
these tiny little coins. God, what a terrible invention. These children, Lord, but I am so good at finding them, and I'm just going to sit over here and be pleased with myself. That's not God. It's a God who pulls out all the stops. He throws parties to end all parties to celebrate the lost being found. So those are the three. Those are the three big ones. But the fourth, the fourth party in Luke 15 is back where we all started. It's the only real party that actually happened. The party that got Jesus in trouble, right? The party that made him have to tell these parables to explain why he's doing all this partying. The party where Jesus is the host who welcomes in the losers of the world. For Jesus, guys, for Jesus, the party's already started. Heaven is already rejoicing. The angels are already singing. The fatted calf is already being served. And the losers are already sitting around a table with him while the religious winners are grumbling outside. Refusing to come in. Refusing to celebrate. Now, if you're going to have a block party, the fifth thing we got to have is a guest list. And here's just the short of it. This is really simple. The short of it is that anyone and everyone is invited to the party. Right? The shepherd, the woman, the father, they were the host, but their neighbors, their friends, their family, everybody were all invited. But listen to this. Also present at these parties were the sheep. The sheep was at the party. You can't, you can't say, hey, guys, come over. I found my lost sheep. Come celebrate with me. And then them walk in, and there's no sheep. I don't think you did. Right? Or the lady's like, hey, I found my coin. Like, well, we want to see the coin. Yay, there's the coin. The son was definitely at the party. He sat at the head of the table, guest of honor, robe on him, rings on his finger. Right? The ones who caused all the trouble in the first place were the guests of honor. I don't know, are you guys hearing the good news this morning? I hope so. Anyone and everyone were invited, but of course not everyone accepted the invitation. Not everyone does. The older son, the very end of the last parable, the older son is the stand-in for the Pharisees, right? Those overly religious sticks in the mud, the party poopers to trump all party poopers. Those who, they lived in complete denial of their own lostness. They they were insisting on themselves being the winners. And you can hear this in the voice of the older son, right? I'm the real winner, dad. I never broke any of your rules. I did all the things you already said, you always said. And the dad's just not impressed. These Pharisees were the older sons who insisted that they deserved a party based on their own merit of having never gotten themselves lost. Which, of course, The Pharisees just couldn't admit that they actually were. They were the older sons who resented the fact that Jesus saves losers and only losers, that he raises the dead and only the dead, that he rejoices more over the last, the least, the lost, and the little than he does over all the winners of the world. God is just not that impressed with all of our wins. So Jesus invites all of us today to to party with all the wrong people as he recovers them. Because really, in the end, there is no them. This is what I hope we see in this parable today. 
Oftentimes we talk about being lost and found as if it's like this one-time thing. But again, sheep are prone to wander. And you know what happened? This, sheep, this shepherd, he brought this sheep back. And you know what happens a few weeks later? It wanders off again. You know? Coin gets lost again. We don't get the whole story, but I'm sure this son was not done with all of his stupid decisions. You know he did something again. In the end, there is no them. There is only us, guys. But this is the good news of God. That we are all sheep prone to wander off into the wilderness. But God is like a shepherd who searches far and wide until he finds us and carries us home on his shoulders. He doesn't even make us do the long, long walk back. We're all the coin prone to falling off the table and rolling under the darkness of the couch. But God is like a woman who searches all night until she sweeps us back out into the light. We are all the child prone to make bad decisions and derail our lives. But God is like a father who waits day and night for us to come to our senses and return home to him. He who runs and embraces us and then who throws a party to end all parties in our honor. The ones who created the whole mess in the first place. And we're all the self-righteous brother, prone to think that all our good behavior, all our successes, all of our accolades have made us winners. But God is the father who comes out and pleads with us to come into the party because the party really is for us as well, if we would just change our minds. We are all invited into the party that is both the means toward and the celebration of our own repentance and recalibration towards Jesus. Let me close with another quote from Capon. He says, nobody will be kicked out for having a rotten life because nobody there will have any life but the life of Jesus. God will say to everybody, you were dead and are alive again. You were lost and are found. Put on a funny hat and step inside.